most recent installment of Building the Scottish State, and I have uh, Pete Wishart with me for the second time in uh, several weeks. So first of all, thank you for being with us again. For having me back on. You're, you're now my favourite indie cool. show, so I'm looking forward to having a chat again. <laughs> What's happened since we've last spoke? It's so uneventful down there in Westminster. Uh, totally. First of all, just the big news that uh, Jeremy Corbyn has basically be, has uh, been stripped of his place within the Labour Party. Tell me a little bit about that. What do you think is, because uh, ostensibly it was due to his reaction to this report. Well, it's quite extraordinary because just a year ago today, the, the uh, general election of 2019 was called and Jeremy Corbyn was on the precipice of becoming Prime Minister, if you were to believe, Jeremy. And now one year later, of course, this dramatic and extraordinary development where he's lost the Labour whip and is effectively expelled from the Parliamentary Labour Party. I mean, I think that this is all about Starmer trying to very much put his own impression upon the Labour Party. The fact that he's looking now to totally expunge the experience in the last few years, the, the Corbyn regime, and um, it's just remarkable that a former Labour leader has, has been treated like this and I've known Jeremy since I came into the House and we actually worked very effectively with Jeremy and all the campaign group at the high point in Blairism it was you know we were practically an effectively an opposition party to high Blairism at the worst part of the Iraq war you know so you know we had high hopes when Jeremy to go with the Labour Party that there might be some sort of working arrangement and somehow we'd be able to come to an understanding just about joint objectives but of course that all ended the minute the file came down from Scottish Labour, never worked with the SNP and all of that was ruined. But, you know, I mean, it's, it's just a remarkable development today and huge news. And how would you uh, characterize his leadership style? I mean, all I know is seeing him, you know, in many PMQs and just kind of being lackluster and just asking these kind of haranguing questions and expecting substantive answers from his opposite and not getting them. And I don't know, how would you characterize his, his leadership style and why do you think it, what do you think, what are the main reasons that it obviously didn't work, didn't win in the election, led to chaos within the Labour Party? There's two words I probably use, chaotic and disorderly when it comes to Jeremy. I mean, that sort of follows him through and everything that he does in present. So but I think we've always got to remember, you know, I mean, I think we characterize Jeremy with the failures of last year and the fact he did so spectacularly badly in the election against Boris Johnson. But in 2017, remember, he, t he, he made massive gains against the Conservative Party and Theresa May's arrogance when she observed how Jeremy was performing and just believed that this would be an absolute walkover for the Conservative Party in 2017, and it was anything but. They lost the majority. Of course, just before that, remember the extraordinary scenes in um, Glastonbury, the white stripes to the Jeremy Corbyn chant. Yeah. So th there was a period where a connection was starting to get made, I think, with the, the, uh, with the UK public, but that quickly evaporated, I think, as the more people observed Jeremy, and, the, and mm -hmm. I think it just became harder, and he was... He had the misery of the, the Brexit experience and he couldn't find a place with that. You know, there was no natural place for a left-leaning Labour figure, a, a natural uh, Eurosceptic to lead a divided Labour Party when it came to Brexit. Mm -hmm. And I think ultimately that was his undoing and all the stuff about anti-Semitism. I don't think anybody really believes that Jeremy Corbyn's an anti-Semite. It's, it's just the nature and terrain of the debate that, you know, any especially support for Palestine, they're drawing naturally into debate about Israel and all the associated anti-Semitism. It's really, really hard and difficult to discuss it.
properly and rationally because of the way that the terms of this debate have been framed. I'm always, I look forward to the Wikipedia entry from the, the years Jeremy Corbyn and see what they say in, uh, in a few years' time. Obviously, substantively, uh, Keir Starmer is substantially different. How do you, I mean, knowing him and him being a colleague of yours, what's your beat on it? What's your take on it? I've I know Jeremy really reasonably well because I've worked with him for, you know, like uh, almost two decades. I hardly know Keir Starmer, but I find him a very aloof, I find him extraordinarily dull, you know, I mean, I call him comatose Kier when he gets up to speaking, and I think this lawyerly way that he's got, well, the people who quickly tire of it, you know, this ladies and gentlemen of the parliament, I put to you type approach that yeah. he does, you know, like, and I think already there's a sort of feeling I'd rather watch paint dry than listen to comatose Kier anymore, and I think today was just about really him starting I mean, so I think this is all about him establishing the new era. This is the so we'll see now exactly what he's all about. You know, I mean, we, we don't really know, you know, like what type of character he is, where he fits the political spectrum. I mean, he was in uh, Corbyn's shadow cabinet without saying much about any sort of particular issue, Brexit rule that he had. So we'll see see now what happens. Yeah. Okay. Tell us uh, more about what's going on with the internal market. Oh, you didn't say that, did you? Not the internal market bill. Uh, that seems to have been our life in the course of the last time I spoke to you, Mark, was the, it was just being introduced to get its first reading in Parliament. And, you know, we've got the opportunity to examine it for the first time in all its power-grabbing horror. I think for most of us, particularly those of us who've got an interest in the constitutional debate, you know, this has been what it's been all about for us in the course. When I read some of the clauses, what that actually meant and represented. And the ones, of course, that were relevant and the ones that hurt most in Scotland were the clauses 42 to 46, where it was a direct funding packages from the UK government uh, pretending to assume the powers of the, the EU and also the, the other things about this, this internal market authority that they were setting in place, which would be the, the arbiter of standards, which would, of course, mean that we would take the, the worst possible standards to have the bargain basement Brexit deals internationally. So like for us, it's, it's been really tough going. But I thought it might have come back um, next week because it's, it's in the House of Lords just now, but of course it's been held up in the Lords. And mm. to be fair to our friends in Ermin, you know, like um, they've taken it all very seriously. And, you know, a number of them have said that unless there's agreement with um, the devolved Parliament and Assemblies, no further progress should be made in the bill. So there's going to be stacks of Lords amendments coming back, mm-hmm. which will then give us an opportunity to revisit it again in the House of Commons. So it's not entirely over, but I'm pretty certain a government with an 80 majority will pretty easily and readily dismiss the House of Lords' concerns on this. And But it does just give us that one other chance, you know, to sort of kick it down a little bit more and everybody knowing it. I mean, can they can they just sit on it indefinitely or do they have, I mean, how does it how does it work? I mean, no, they'll, 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 they will eventually have to pick this up. The House of Lords is, isn't subject to the same guillotines and time allocations that we have in the House of Commons, but they will, they'll, they'll, they'll get back to this. They're a bunch of donors and cronies eventually at the end of the day. They're there because of patronage. And, you know, like for all the groans that they make about certain things and their apparent desire to, talk things out or not deal with things properly, they are they are there because prospective party leaders put them there and they will eventually just get on with it because that's the way the House of Lords works. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I mean, is, is there any question that it will eventually be passed and that? Absolutely. I mean, I think, I think that was set in stone in the second reading debate. I think our activities, the House of Commons highlighted 
the relevant impact in Scotland, and that was the best that we could do. I mean, we highlighted the, the perniciousness of the whole bill, you know, like quite represented to, to Parliament. So it's really funny, you know, I chaired the Scottish Affairs Committee, and yes. um, we've got a session on internal market bill. I think I think we're doing it um, a week on Wednesday, so like it's going to be our opportunity to, to scrutinise it. We're only going to do a couple of sessions on this. And the thing is, I mean, usually when we, we put out for people to come forward to speak about this, you know, you, you get you try to get a balanced range of views. Mm-hmm. We cannot find any academic or constitutional expert who's prepared to bat for the internal market bill. Mm-hmm. All of them know how difficult this is and the impact this has for devolution. So it's really hard even just to find somebody to come along and support it and tell us why this is good for the UK. So it's, it's that type of bill, you know, it's, it's so clear cut. This is de- devolution destroying a naked power grab and, you know, has such a significant impact on the way the UK has been governed. Absolutely. Well, I mean, that, and that's one of the, obviously one of the disadvantages of being, you know, without with, without a written constitution is that, I mean, a, a written constitution would not allow for, you know, these devolved settlements to be just, you know, bulldozed in this in this fashion. So it's un- unfortunate. And, and then... <laughs> That's a really good point, and I know you're interested in these things, and I tried to have another look at some of the work you've been doing, which I commend you greatly for Thank you. in terms yeah. of building the Constitution. I think that you know, you're, you're, you're becoming a leading authority on that, and I think the work that you're doing is, is, uh, is really, really well-timed and well-placed, and, and, I, and I promise to study it a bit better, okay, Mark. Cool. Oh, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll have a t- when, you, when do you have a chance to talk about it? We'll the, thing, the thing is about the, the idea that there isn't a written Constitution is that there's a whole infrastructure that's in place to regulate and support devolution. And, you know, like there's the things people will know about the Soul Convention, which mm-hmm. was there to sort of protect the integrity of individual parliaments and assemblies. Now, that's been completely overridden. And mm-hmm. again, you know, like the Scottish Parliament have said very, or well, will be the Scottish Parliament, the Scottish Government just now, they're saying we will not pass this piece of legislation. And the thing is, because that infrastructure is now so degraded that the UK Government could find and find it free at its will just to simply ignore that. It's what they did in the, the uh, EU Constitution Bill, and it's what they'll do in this one too. And you know, like, There is nothing there now that we have in place which could effectively and vigorously defend the institutions of devolution. And you know, this is one of the main reasons why we need our independence, because well, we cannot do this anymore with... I mean, like, where it gives us sort of certain protections and we can do certain things in the Scottish Parliament... We, we, we know that on the turn of a will of the UK Parliament, that's totally now over, overridden and there's nothing there to defend and protect that. Uh, and, and in addition to the this this notion of parliamentary sovereignty of you know the, the crown in parliament having you know the UK is still basically divine right still reference to God and you know I mean when you see the coronation and all of these very it's all so stuck in the feudal era really you know in terms of the and it's just completely rusty, constitutional, you know, Rube Goldberg-type stuff. I remember, um, like, uh, I think it was one Queen's speech, and I was sitting there with Hugh Edwards at the state opening of Parliament. And it's actually quite remarkable. Everybody will know the day when she comes down in her carriage and she's handed a speech by the government and she reads it out. And I was sitting with Hugh, who knew every part of this process. And he said, the Queen's now going into the robing room where Lady Arms will take off her blah, blah, put on this, she'll now wear the crown, the state. And I was thinking, seriously? Is this how this is done? What do you make of this? And I said, well, um, 
it's not really my thing, Hugh. But it's, oh, you're right, it's, it's all this thing. And, and, and the thing is that they take very seriously this idea of parliamentary sovereignty. It's what, for them, it's all about Brexit, is effectively yes. all about the reassertion of parliamentary sovereignty. And they take a very, very, very close and distinct view about what this means to them. And it's all about this right that parliament can do what it wants. And it's so different to how we see ourselves as a community and nation. Scotland, mm-hmm. obviously, what supports and sustains us is, is the concept and idea of the sovereignty of the people. And so, you know, like it's two different cultures that we have when it comes to how we see ourselves and how we should be governed. The problem is, is as Scotland is, of course, in the UK, the, the notion of parliamentary sovereignty, the UK parliamentary sovereignty prevails. And, 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 and whereas uh, Scottish sovereignty has no, I know that they, what was it, a couple of years ago, they allowed uh, a resolution to pass affirming claim of right. So does that, do you think that would have any weight in, you know, in, in the... No, I mean, I wish, I wish it could, but no is, is the short answer to that. I mean, it was a, a very clever move. Um, it, was, it was Ian's idea in Blackford that, you know, when we had an opposition day, that what we would do would be to take, you know, the claim of right to mm-hmm. Parliament and ask Parliament to back it. But, you know, like, um, and we did do that. And it was just a matter of to try and ensure that that was going to be reasserted mm-hmm. and we're putting it directly in the face of the UK Parliament and all the tensions about parliamentary sovereignty. When it comes to UK law, unfortunately, there's no place at all for it. I mean, the idea of sovereignty of people is a political concept, which we believe in ourselves, but something underpins our determination to be a, 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 an independent nation. But um, they just sat back because they knew that, you know, like, even if the House passed it, which it did because nobody voted against it, you know, there's, mm-hmm. there's very little that we could do while we are part of the United Kingdom to set that. Okay, well, that brings me on. That, that leads perfectly into the next uh, subject of debate: is how uh, independence is achieved. Now, I know you're on Twitter a lot, and you know there's a lot of mud being flown back and forth about the process. And, and from what I understand, you're very much a believer in the Plan A that there should be a, a, a referendum with the agreement of Boris Johnson. Uh, and then it should go the way it went in 2014. Uh, but the obvious question arises, what if what if he doesn't give it? And what if he is completely impermeable to uh, any kind of uh, public opinion, uh, whether in Scotland or, or elsewhere? I mean, look at you know the way Brexit has gone. You know, uh, support has increased. It's now like 58%, according to some polls, in favor of independence. What happens if if and when the, 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 the Section 30 is achieved? Well, if it's achieved, then we have an independent referendum and we become an independent nation. And, you know, I mean, you're absolutely right. It's, I mean, somebody told me six years ago, just after losing an independence referendum, that, uh, 55 to 45, that we'd be sitting 58% sustained majority support. Or, you know, I would never believe that. Mm-hmm. But I think it says a number of things just about where we are. And it's the, the most obvious thing to detect is the resilience of the people who still want to see an independent Scotland. And also, I think that the way that we've aligned new people and recruited people to the cause of independence, particularly in the last year or two years, I noted that difference in the 2019 election last year, that people who were previously no voters in, in Perth, we do lots and lots of canvassing. We're the most canvassed constituency in the whole of Scotland. So we've got great records of people going back years and years and years. And you could tell when you're chapping on doors if they were a no voter or a yes voter. So we were able to detect and find that. But what we were finding was people who had voted no, but had voted Renee in the European Union referendum, yeah. who were now saying to, saying to me, listen, Pete, you know, I've never voted for you. I've voted no in the independence referendum, but I'm I'm not going to be, I'm not a supporter of independence. Mm-hmm. And this was great, mm-hmm. but they're not 
totally confirmed supporters. They've got loads of questions. There's, you know, all this talk about UDIs and, you know, plebiscites really scared these people. They observed Boris Johnson doing that. They observed Boris Johnson proroguing Parliament and Act of Constitution. They do not want us to progress Scottish independence on that basis. In my view about all of this, it's really quite simple. We're in a great position just now, 58% of people supporting Scottish independence. But that 58% is a huge coalition of people. Some who are like the people I described, new recruits, tentative, mm. still got lots of questions, mm-hmm. easily taken back if the right type of case was put to them from the unionist cause. Sitting next to them is like, just get it done, yeah. Just get it done. I am not waiting any longer. I'm demanding independence. And so you've got all of that. And people have the different means of coming to independence, what it means to them, what they want and how they want to do. The, the challenge for us, I think, in the whole Yes movement is how do we take this whole huge broad coalition with us? So we're not scaring off those who have just been recruited to a cause, but at the same time, we're trying to ensure that those who are just determined to get it done stay with us and continue to work. And what I've suggested, of course, and everybody's free to read it in my blog, is that the route map to independence that goes through the various and relevant stages, increasingly turning the screw on the government. Now, you're asking me, will Boris Johnson say yes to such I don't know. I think he will. I think he will be for this reason. We know that they're preparing for it. You know, like one of the things that's developed since you and I last chatted are all these new groups, resources. Yeah, yeah. I, I've, got, I've got an article on one that's, that quotes you uh, from, uh, from uh, about the pro-union group that Michael Gove is uh, saying. Yes. So they're putting all this together. Now, if they were just going to say no and really mean it, they wouldn't be doing this because all they need to say, well, don't bother what you think about independence because there's no anyway. But we now know that they're preparing for a referendum and they're now preparing okay. the new case. Fair the union, so that's all, all very much in place. And the other difficulty Boris Johnson got is this time we might win this and we would recreate the conditions that gave a referendum in 2011 with a majority SP government, but that might even be based on the majority of the Scottish people. And for Boris Johnson, it's not then taking on a referendum, it's mm-hmm. taking on democracy itself, and that's mm-hmm. a very, very uncomfortable place for any government. But he still might say no. You still might say no, and then you turn the screw with all the different things that we've got and what we've got to demonstrate to the international community. Well, what are the screws? The thing is, that in the short term, it's very scary because you have this internal markets bill. Uh, will the power grab commence on the 1st of uh, January? Will they, apparently they've, the UK has set up a very, very large uh, civil service in Scotland. I just saw this on Twitter, but I can't, so I can't attest to its uh, absolute validity. But uh, in the UK... Japan free trade agreement, 14 products have lost their protected status. Ayrshire Earlies, Ayrshire Dunlop Cheese, Ayrshire New Potatoes, Arbroath Smokies, Bonchester Cheese, et cetera. Uh, so I, I, what, I'm, what I'm saying is um, this stuff's happening. I mean, it's, not, it's no longer hypothetical that they, that they are doing this power grab and that they are stripping the powers from the Scottish Parliament. And it's like, at what point do you say, you can talk about pressure on Boris Johnson and all that, especially leading up to this, this Holy Writ election. But, you know, for, from a political science point of view, it's existential uh, that, that Scotland at least announce a referendum really soon. And they may, may, they may be, uh, the, the SNP might be about to, I'm not discounting any plausible scenario, that, that, that before, especially before Brexit, but uh, it just seems like waiting for, you know, uh, until after the, the SNP elections might be, uh, sorry, the, the Scottish government elections may be too late in a lot of ways. How do you, how do you see it based on your, knowledge of Westminster and what they're, what they're capable of. 
they can do anything. I mean, what I what, what I call it just now in their approach, so particularly this conservative government's approach, I, I call it aggressive unionism. I mean, it's a policy that they started to adopt probably just in advance in the, the 2017 election. Up until then, there had been, we're still devolving powers to the Scottish Parliament, things like wealth powers that we now have in place. This, this was all a, a gentle increase of powers of the Scottish Parliament, which was the consensus across, even including the Conservatives. And this mm-hmm. went on up until about 2017. Mm-hmm. And I think at that point, the, the Conservatives started to see they were having a little bit of success. You know, they, had, they got their, their 30 members of Parliament. So then they changed policy. And the policy became this aggressive unionism. And mm-hmm. the aggressive unionism could be characterised as weakening the powers of the Scottish Parliament, trying mm-hmm. to almost like put in place Scottish democracy so it knows where its place is within the United Kingdom. But it's been a disaster for them, a total and utter disaster. <laughs> Since aggressive unionism became the orthodoxy in, in, the, in the Conservative Party, they lost more than half the members of Parliament. They're now sitting, I think it's in the last opinion poll, I saw them at 20%. They're now roughly in, in the same, same condition. They're, they're, they're down to lose large swathes of their MSPs in the, the, the next whole election. So what I'm detecting from, from um, the Westminster Tories isn't so much a continuation of the aggressive unionism, though they might, but they're actually trying now to be cuddly unionists. And I, I, that actually scares me just a little bit more. <laughs> you know, like conservatives bearing gifts more than, you know, like um, continuing with this aggressive approach, which has so singularly failed them in the course of the past couple of years. And we've, we've heard a lot of the slap a jack in it, you know, like Scottish people could see all the largesse and generosity in the UK states. They're, they're trying to do this. They're trying to find ways to enlist the Scottish government a little bit more in joint decision-making. So I heading more towards that, whittle away at the powers of the Scottish Parliament. And you know, there'll probably be a bit of both, a bit of aggressive unionism tempered with trying to be a bit more cuddly conservative. So but you can never tell what they're going to do. And this is why we need to be independent. And going back to but, your main but, but, but what's the mecha- what's the mechanism? If these if this pressure, I mean, I, you, I mean, it, it's perfectly valid to say that, you know, there, there are these points of pressure that, that Scotland has. But what if it's not? I mean, you 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 know you you know the nature of the Tory government better than anybody. I, I don't, and I and I while I certainly understand, take your point very well of, of them, you know, kind of ramping up for some kind of um, you know uh, some kind of a campaign. Uh, at the same time, if they if they can continue to you know do this power grab to the point and maybe I don't know privatize the the Scottish NHS. I mean, there's a lot they can do. You know, yeah, absolutely. This is why, again, I think the point we'll all, all agree, and this is why we need the independence. But we only get independence if if we do it, if we win, you know? And so, like, a suggestion that somehow that we just call a referendum, with, like, nobody will participate in it. There won't be a union side of union case. What we have to do, and, and, and I know this is hard for some people, there's a way that we go to keep the coalition of our support together in order to ensure that it might stay with us when we do the harder things. I mean, getting them to vote SNP next election is an easy thing mm-hmm. because like, they know that we're part of independence, we support independence, we get a majority, you know, we'll be calling for a referendum. That's, that's relatively easy. Asking them to participate in plebiscites is harder. Asking them to participate in a, a referendum which might not have an opposition, which might be considered illegal, it's also tough, but to get them to get to that stage, we've got to go through this in the right order with the right process, or we risk fragmenting the support that we've got. So what we have to do, first of all, is get that supermajority 
in the holiday election next year to get an SNP majority, hopefully on the back of majority support. And then we see where we are. We put this to the Tory government say, well, listen, you know, here's the conditions of 2011, replicated, all in place, backed up with the majority of the Scottish people, you know, like, come on. And then if they say no, we go to the next stages and you ask what the next stages should be. I think I think the first thing that we should be thinking about doing at that stage is we'll give them every opportunity, every opportunity to engage. We say to them, come on, come on, sit down. Like, all we want to talk about is this. Come back. Let's discuss this this time. We'll come back in two weeks, chap on your door. We'll come down to Downing Street. We'll meet you there. You could meet in the, the, the Windsor Castle, if you want. So we every opportunity to get them to engage. And if they're still saying, no, no, no. And then we start to think about other things. And the things that I talk about doing, and the place that I would start would be to start to withdraw from some of the apparatus in the UK state. We've got the Joint Ministerial Council and all the infrastructure that supports the governance of the UK in, in place just now. We come off that. We just say, bye. There's no point in us sitting around here discussing how the UK should be managed and governed when you're not listening to the Scottish people. So we, we come away with that. Then we start to do things in the Scottish Parliament that you know, are notionally reserved. So we, we look at how we could start to legislate in other areas and behave more like an independent parliament. So we just say to Westminster, listen, you're not going to do this, we'll do it ourselves. But the biggest and most important thing is building international capacity. Because at the end of the day, we've got to convince the international community to get on our side, to support us in all of this. I think there's already a lot. I, I think, uh, I mean, I, you, last time we spoke, you, you made the analogy of Catalonia, which is a perfectly a perfectly valid. I was there, I was, I was in uh, Barcelona for three months in 2016, and I saw firsthand, you know, what, you know, what they were up against in terms of the Spanish state. And the Spanish state was you know, threatening anybody that gave any even remotely support for Catalonia. They were, you know, they would threaten, you know, all that. And, and, that would, and them, Spain being part of the EU, they were able to use that force uh, to, to, to quell any support for, uh, for the referendum. And so they, they, as you saw, they did not get any international recognition because they, the Spain would have been absolutely furious with them. It's different, you know, with Scotland, especially in the context of Brexit. I'm just putting this to you that if Scotland was to say, okay, look, Boris Johnson says, no, 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 no. The Scottish government has already passed the referendums bill without the, without the date in the, in the question. And from what I understand, uh, they will be, you know, hopefully proposing a referendum sometime next year. That's what I'm led to understand. I sent you that link to the Scottish Investment Bank and uh, that says that, uh, I forget the exact date, but in, in September next year that there would be a referendum. And that's obviously part of the SNP's thinking. So I'm just wondering if, you know, keeping these stuff under wraps during these very difficult Brexit negotiations, but once it becomes clear that there's going to be no deal or something like that, then that completely changes the picture. And I think a huge amount of Europe would be very receptive, but they can't say it now. I think think that's absolutely right. And we know that because we we, we do speak to European politicians. In fact, we speak to them regularly. And, you know, like what we've all detected is very much a change in how they observe what's happening in Scotland and a much more greater support for what we're attempting to do. But it's the thing that we're told, and I know this is hard for a lot of people again, they're only going to do it if we do it legally and constitutionally. And that's, that's the thing, that's the bottom line. If we start to do things which look legal, feel unconstitutional, there'll be a way in a minute. There'll be a way in a minute. So what we've always got, and this is why people going about the Section 30 agreement with the UK state, the UK state, the fact that this will be the continuing parent state when it comes to 
they're all looking for us to come to an arrangement and agreement with the UK. So this is done right according to how they see the right and wrong when it comes to their engagement with us. So this is why it's so important. But, the, but if the UK say, no, we've got to go back to them and say, well, listen, we've tried absolutely everything. We've tried to engage them. We've said to them, we'll meet them in Windsor, Ca- Windsor Castle if they want. We'll sit down, discuss this with them again and again and again. Tell us the date, we'll sit around the table. Mm-hmm. We've got to demonstrate to international partners that we've tried absolutely everything to engage the UK government in a process. But what we've got to say to them is that because they've refused to engage, they've discharged, voluntarily just discharged their obligations as a partner in the union. So we're going to have to design another way around this. And we're looking at you, European allies and friends. Tell us what we could do to engage the UK. But if they, if they can't come up with anything, they've got to start to get behind some other sort of process to help us, enable us to be part of the European Union, which they know that we want to be. Mm-hmm. So this is the sort of tension and difficulties that we've got. So we do everything possible to put that leverage onto the UK government to get them engaged, give them every opportunity to participate with us in an agreed referendum. But at the same time, they start to make that case, the representation to European and international partners to build that up, help them put pressure on the UK, but if not, support us in our rightful claim for its independence. So, you know, I mean, neat, straightforward, all done if this agree to a Section 30 and we have an agreed referendum. Difficult, hard work, lots of negotiations, probably a number of setbacks if we don't get that. And so when people say, just ignore the Section 30 process, just go and do it all on your own, you've got to know what that means because that makes it so much harder to do this. It's easier to put that leverage on to the Tory government to ensure that they do the right thing. Tell them they're taking on democracy, not a referendum. Do all the right things in order to ensure we do this. Because if we get that agreement, if we get that process, the minute that's concluded, we're independent. End the story. Any other way, difficult, fraught with a whole number of dangers. And, you know, like it's it's just going to be such a difficult, complicated process. Okay. I wanted to address one more issue before we go. We uh, we file through some some of the questions uh, with regard to the uh, in the com- upcoming Holyrood elections. Uh, several inde- independence parties are, are are thinking about standing on the uh, is it the li- list seats, which could potentially because if if the polls are correct and the SNP wins an overall majority with with the constituencies, then that leaves a lot of um, you know. A, a, list seats open, which could potentially be won by pro-indie parties, depending on how well organized, and to the exclusion of, I, I, from what I understand, the Independence for Scotland, which um, party which uh, Gordon Ross is uh, you know involved with, they got higher po- polling numbers than the Tories right now. It's, they have the, they would have the potential, at least in the list seats, not the constituencies, the least seats, to uh, comprehensively increase a majority without cutting into the SNP majority. How, how do you see these things, and what do you what is your view? Utter madness. And I really can't believe when I observe some of these things. And I don't know which opinion poll you're referring to about the, I think you said the ISP polling on the Tories. They're not, they're, they're, they're on less than 1% combined with all the other, you know, pop up indie list parties that are out there. And I don't know which one makes the best claim to be the real one. You know, like I know that I think there's something like eight just now. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're full of people who nobody knows. With policies that nobody quite understands other than the independent stuff, of course. And even to have some sort of impression to even get one regional list, list member, they would need something, a 
approaching 7%. It might be possible just about to do it with 5.56%. But we need someone like 7%. They're never going to get that in a million years. Nobody knows who the earth they are. I mean, like, um, I, see, I see that ISP you're referring to. I mean, they're a, a Twitter sensation. There's only 5,500 Twitter followers. I mean, how do you start to communicate? I don't think these people even have sat down and thought just how difficult political campaigning is, just how hard party structures are to put together and to have, to, even just to get people to know who you are, it takes, for the SNP, it took decades for us to get our first member of parliament, and then much longer than that to be an effective political force. Now, the sensible thing to do is if the SNP list vote matches our constituency vote, you'll get a seat in every, every, regional, every regional list. You'll get that. So we get an, a super majority with the SNP. If only we could convince people to not waste their vote on fringe parties that won't even start to make any impression in the election. Forget about the Greens. And the other thing about all this, there has to be a huge statement with this election. The, the number of votes the SNP get this time around will be absolutely critical. Now, the Tories only look at independence votes as SNP votes. They don't care less about the ISP or Dave Thompson, Zafi or whoever else is coming forward to claim that they're a party of independence. They only look at SNP votes. So we've not to give them this excuse. Well, look at the SNP vote went down for the, the parliament list. You know, so seriously, people really need to understand how important this election is. We've got to get a huge SNP mandate. And the stronger that SNP vote is, whether that's in the list or in the constituency, the better claim and the more pressure that puts on the Johnson government to do exactly what we want, which is to, for him to agree to a referendum that we will go on to win. Okay. All right. Um, I'm going through the questions. I, I think uh, many of them have already been answered in when, when you spoke about the Section 30 order. Uh, John asks if Pete would would agree that the Labour Party will never support independence as they would relinquish all hope of ever returning to power in Westminster. I think Keir Starmer has also basically said that he would be against a referendum as well. How do you see the, the Labour Party, uh, p- potential Labour Party support for an independence referendum? I mean, I would entirely rule out the Labour Party. I mean, it must be so hard being the Labour Party in Scotland. You used to overlord all these constituencies, the former heartlands, West Central Scotland, right across the Central Belt. Then all of a sudden, all the people who used to vote for the for the Labour Party now support independence and vote for the SNP. For them to remain a unionist party, particularly a hard unionist party, it's one of the most absurd ideological political positions that any party in the UK can ever think about adopting. And at some point, there must be somebody at their NEC put their hand up and say, listen, we've tried this again and again and again. It's not what How about looking at maybe being a party of independence? And I observe a new generation of Labour activists who are starting to think about this. When I was at Westminster, it was, remember, it was dominant, it was 45 Labour MPs. When were you first elected to? I was first elected in 2001. Okay. So I went through all the high Blairism into Gordon Brown, into Cameron, into yeah. you know, where we are just now. Like up till 2015, there was 45 Scottish Labour members of Parliament. And there was one remark that was made during the independence referendum. I, I had to lead for the SNP in most of the debates in the House of Commons, because I was the Scotland Constitution spokesperson. So I was there at all the debates, and I, I listened very carefully to what Labour members said, but there's one thing, one I'll never forget. It was a Labour MP who's now dead, who I think he represented Clydesdale, a guy called Jimmy Hood, who got to his feet in the usual traditional Labour, in, incoherent way, said, even if independence made us better off, I'd still be against it. <laughs> That's what you were dealing with. 
Now, the, all these people are now gone. The only dinosaur that's still there is Ian Murray. And yeah. Ian Murray was, of course, part of that Labour tradition and culture at Westminster. I'm seeing new Labour activists who are just thinking, this is nuts. Why are we still a unionist party? You know, when all the people who used to vote for us now support independence. So at some point, it's just going to click with them. And so I'm not giving up in the Labour Party. Uh-huh. I still think there's a way. And, and I, I, forget the, I forget the number in the polls, but there's a, certainly a significant number of Labour voters who support. Yep. It's not like, you know, there's a monolithic uh, and maybe a lot of Labour uh, support, supporters in Scotland. Remember, that's what's left of the Labour vote. I mean, that's not, I mean, most of them are away supporting the SNP and, or maybe SNP members now, but that's what's left mm-hmm. of what was the unionist Labour folk who are still prepared to vote for the SNP. It's just incredible. And, and it's almost unbelievable that they're still siding with the Tories when it comes, you know, to the Constitution that's... that's so it's going to be a tough old election for Labour. They're not going to change it in advance of me, but maybe, you know, a, a further thumping, you know, like might just make them come to their senses. Dave, Craig, Greg, uh, does Pete believe that Scottish, the Scottish public know about the bill, I believe referring to the uh, internal markets one? One of the, the powerful changes that could disempower Scotland, shouldn't the SNP be marketing campaign to make people aware? Uh, just what do you think of the general awareness of the internal markets it's, bill? It's such a, such a difficult thing to explain. Um, to the Scottish public. I, I made a valiant attempt in my regular um, column in the Persian Advertiser. I tried to explain it as simply as possible and I tried it out with quite a number of people. You know what I'm talking about here? And some of them did, but it's a hard, hard concept for people. I think people, you know, like who haven't got our fascination politics and follow all its nuances every single minute of the day, you know, they understand certain things about it. So I think through our activities and how we've responded to this bill. People now know it's a power grab. They now know that it presents some sort of real threat to our Scottish Parliament, to our institutions of democracy. So I think we've done enough to get that across, you know, but it's it's, it's such a difficult thing to explain. But that's what people do. They, they pick up little things and they recognise things and they recognise it to be true. And I think the Scottish public recognised internal market bill as a threat to our democracy, to our Parliament, and it's a very much a naked power grab. Okay, and that ties in with the next one. Uh, why did the SNP seem to allow Scotland to play the subservient role? If England wanted their independence from us, they would. Would they, like they did a la Brexit, ask us uh, our permission? You know, and we talked about this when we were talking about uh, the notion of parliamentary sovereignty. Basically, that you know, the, because this, the Scotland is in the UK, and that they then the, they have this notion of parliamentary sovereignty where they can do whatever they want, including doing and undoing. Uh, bills that they're able to do that. But um, do, do you have anything to add to that about... Um... No, really, we are where we are, you know, I mean, like, um, we are in the union, you know, like, we're a, in terms of our size compared to the rest of the UK, you know, we have to understand and accept the fact that, you know, we've got a devolved parliament within a greater parliament which accepts its parliamentary sovereignty. And this is the reason why we want to secure our, our Scottish independence. And there's there is one thing that's happened which has given me a little bit of encouragement in the course of the past few weeks, and this is what I call the Northern Rising, you know, across the regions of the UK. You know, like they've taken really badly to some of the new COVID restrictions, and there does seem now to be the sense across Northern England. And I think they've got a little bit of what it feels like to be Scottish, which is you <laughs> yeah, know, yeah. London saying to them, no, here's your pocket money. Like, we're not going to give you enough in order to survive and get through all these things. And we might listen to you, but we'll patronise you a little bit, but send you on your way. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of people in England now who's maybe start to pick what this is like for us all the time. 
And mm-hmm. they might be potential allies in the future. So you're talking about England doing something. There might be something happening there, which you know, like might just start to turn into something constructive, useful. It might even be a challenge to the UK state itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, I see somebody asking about the voting system here again, about how the SNP achieves a majority with the voting system designed to prevent out. I don't know if it was, you know, like I know this has become some, one of these sort of... Articles, yeah. Yeah, that somehow it's designed to stop us ever getting a majority. I mean, it's a proportional system. And, you know, like if you look at what happens in previous elections, the support a political party gets usually sort of matches the members of... Parliament that's elected. The Scottish National Party have done a little bit better. It's been a little bit more generous to us just because as a as a party, our, our strength isn't in one particular part of Scotland. Like we we do well everywhere. You know, like we've struggled to win some of the seats to the border, but borders, but everywhere else in Scotland, you know, like we're expected to be in the game. So we do well out of the AMS, the haunt system, just because of our, our strength right across Scotland. So I, I don't, not sure it's designed to prevent majority. And if it was, it's done particularly badly in it then, isn't it? You know, like we, we got a majority in 2011, and if opinion polls are to be believed, we're, we're going to get another majority majority again. And this is some of the things that, you know, I get back to about people who are trying to game the system. You know, what they're trying to do is, is game proportional representation. And there is, you know, there's, I've got nothing against that. But, you know, like, what, what do they want? You either want a, a PR system, and AMS is a reasonably good PR system because what it does is retain constituency links. So you have got an MSP. I've got John Swinney, for example, who's a local MSP in Perthshire. And mm-hmm. everybody likes to John really well as a local MSP. They know they could go to him. So, you know, you've not got huge regional lists. You, you still have individual constituency members of the Scottish Parliament, and then you have the list side that provides that proportionality. And I can understand why people want to game it, but PR is really, really hard to game, and I'm pretty certain it's going to be unsuccessful again if people are going to try and attempt to do it. Okay. Uh, Have the Scottish Parliament taken steps to defend itself from the government in London dissolving the Parliament, the Scottish Parliament next year, presuming it has the intention to? How how do you read that? Uh, uh, What is the transition bill that they passed uh, uh, the Scottish Parliament a couple years ago to protect the protect the powers. I forget I forget the name of it. Um, I know that was passed, so I know that they have done that. What, what do you know about what this? How the Scot- the Scottish government has prepared for Brexit and you know this power grab? What have they done, or what can they do? To defend themselves, uh, if, if anything, they could do what they can with what's available to them. And we've seen the way that they've, you know, they use every single instrument of at, at their disposal to oppose Brexit. You know, even you know, bringing forward their own paper about you know, like a particular role for Scotland when it comes to this, saying no to any Brexit legislation, just denying any piece of Brexit legislation, whether that's in agriculture, fisheries, or general EU departure, just not giving it a legislative consent, you know, and so the, the, the opposition goes on and goes through and the Scottish people observe that. And that's one of the reasons I think that we've been so effective in recruiting uh, Remainers to the cause of Scottish independence to the SNP because they see like our values expressed and how we oppose some of the things that Westminster does. But then you're coming back again, Mark, against this brick wall of parliamentary sovereignty and the UK being able to do and say as it will and, and doing that with a great deal more certainty and aggression. And this is, again, we get back to what it's all about, which underpins all the conversation that we have, that 
We have to be an independent nation to ensure that we're properly protected from all of this and we make all our decisions on their own and we're not having decisions imposed upon us. But I, I look at people like, like Mike Russell, you know, like Mike's been a good friend of mine for almost 30 years. And like, you know, when, you, when he rises to his feet, he speaks for our nation. And that's what I think people in the public want to see is leaders like Michael, Michael Russell, like Nicholas Sturgeon, like Gene Freeman, who are standing there knowing that, you know, like we're part of this arrangement with the UK that treats us in a particular way, but they are there speaking for them and they recognise that. And that's what's driving support for the Scottish National Party just now. Because remember that, you know, like um, we're support for independence. We're all encouraged about that. You know, 58% sustained majority all year. Support for the SNP is also at 58%, you know, and if you were to listen to some people on social media, you'd think the SNP is falling apart, or that, you know, like we're, we're all we're all infighting each other's throats. The SNP has never been so popular, but more than that, it's got huge approval ratings. You know, we've ne- there's never been approval ratings for a government like we have in the Scottish National Park just now. So, you know, like we are the means to do all this. The SNP government speak for our nation and when they get to their feet and they talk about things like Brexit, when they talk about how we're doing a response to COVID, people recognise that that's people who, who we want to invest in and support. And how do you characterise the SNP ideologically? I mean, you know, I've been observing for about a decade now, really, of, of, of this goings-on with uh, the Scottish independence referendum and the SNP in particular, and I've been a member for the past three years mostly to go to the conferences. Uh, but um, I've always considered them some, somewhat of a centre-left party, uh, and and um, and, uh, and in some senses more socially, you know, socially co- conscious than 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 at least the new Labour Party or you know the more Blairite Labour Party. But you are you you do also, but of course, you know, any party that that's that that, that is so popular or at least has such a wide approval ratings, obviously has to have a lot of different. Tense within it. I mean, is that a pretty accurate assessment? Yeah, yeah. We, we're one of the few people who know what we are, and you know, we, we don't have to reassert it or fight about it or, or, or have any sort of great debates. We're, we're a centre-left party, you know, because that's roughly the community values of the people of Scotland. That's where they are. So we reflect that. I'm old enough to remember, Mark, the the old ideological battles, you know, about left and right, the 79 group, for example, you know, like there was a period in the, the mid-70s under the leadership of Gordon Wilson where there might have been more of a centrist position, shall we say, about some, certainly some of the economic programmes around the Scottish National Party. And there was probably the only time in the party system that, that I'm familiar with. And the arrival of Alex Salmond as a political force in his vision of making sure that we defined us arguments we have about is about independence about just about you know like how we get there and you know like the the old fundamentalist versus the gradualist and you know like again there was a senior office bearer in the mid-1990s that was a a debate that we were having and it's now seems to be coming back again is we're at this critical uh, place just points for our independence, you know. Where it might have been useful 25 years ago, I'm, I'm not sensing it's as useful now because more than ever, we need unity. We need, we need a united movement. We need a united party. It's some of the things I observe on social media I totally and utterly despair of. I'm mm-hmm. thinking, you know, the Tories can't beat us. They, they, they know they can't beat us. They haven't got the means. They haven't got the arguments. The union case is 
just so degraded. Mm-hmm. The only people who could beat us now is ourselves. I understand that, but at the same time, I know that there's a lot of frustration, as you, as you yeah. do too, totally. of, of just not a clear path. And, and you know, the, the saying of, you know, plan A is the only way. I understand that. And, and I know that, you know, once you've gone through these actions and, you know, sees how, sees how that plays out, maybe there can be some kind of divergence from that. But I, I just know that there's a lot of people, you know, that are very concerned, deeply concerned uh, mm-hmm. that there will be a, a, you know, a total power grab on the 1st of January. The Scottish Parliament can be shut down. I mean, maybe all of it's hypothetical, but the we see with the internal markets. Well, see, see, we can't plan for hypotheticals. We've got knowns. We've got an election in May. Right. If we win that, we could have an SNP majority again based on the back of the majority of people of Scotland. You know, we, we can't do anything about the other things. They may do that. They may not do that. We might develop a penchant for cuddly conservatism. And Stranger things have happened. <laughs> you know, so we, we, we can't plan for hypotheticals. And regardless of how much people will say, you know, like the 1st and 2nd of January, they'll just abolish the Scottish Parliament and do all this. We don't know they're doing that. I mean, I've not seen any great evidence for that. And I observe them very closely. I watch this government like a hawk. Mm-hmm. And um, I've got the brief of the cabinet officer. I get a sense of some of the mechanics of what they're doing when it comes to the constitution and the union. Could you talk a little bit about that just in very general terms? I mean, how they see from, from your perception, how they see Scotland post-Brexit, uh, what their basic thinking is to the, to the extent there is any? <laughs> well, they, they know they've got a problem and they, they're observing the support that we have. They, they know that there's a groundswell opinion for independence. That the, the worry that they've got just now when it comes to Scottish independence is that they're starting to think that there's, there's no turning this round and going back. And they're getting really worried and panicked about all this. This is why they're setting up all these resources and facilities to try and take on um, Scottish independence and prepare for a referendum that's going to, going to come. So they've got real difficulties about this. Now, I shadow Michael Gove, as you know, going <laughs> by your head, you know, I thought that was a very elegant Scottish term that a proud Scot like Michael would understand very readily. <laughs> so you, you're, you've seen all these things going on and you've seen the, what they're, they're building. But in terms of the, the bigger Brexit project, they could not give a stuff about Scotland. I mean, our views are totally irrelevant to that. They made that very clear from the outset. You know, like all the times that we were trying to engage with them, and you could sense the frustrations of people like Michael Russell, who, you know, trying just to get them to meet the Joint Ministerial Council, for, for, yeah. for example, just sit with them and talk them through. And I found that I found Michael's thing this week despairing that Scotland hadn't prepared sufficiently to leave the European Union a bit rich. This is a country that wants nothing to do with their crazy, disastrous Brexit. And all of a sudden, he's, he wants us to be like spending our time preparing for a Brexit that nobody voted for, nobody wants. And we're determined you know, to get back into Europe at the earliest possible opportunity. OK, we'll be wrapping this up uh, in the next few minutes. But uh, any, sorry, we didn't get to all of the questions. I tried as, as well as I could to kind of get them together to, you know, because a lot of them were on Section 30. One very good question here go ahead, go ahead. is how do you convince the undecideds that is the... The key question, because I think there's a lot of people thinking it's already done and dusted that we've already won, you know, like independent support is so high and that we're doing so well. But I think a lot of that support is still very fragile. And this is why I worry about the UK government trying to force us into unconstitutionality and illegality, if I can even say these words correctly. (laughs) You know, and and I I think they're looking, because the UK government's one approach to this is to say no to Scottish independence in a referendum and hope that the impatience and frustration builds up and that turns into fragmentation. 
<laughs> that's the only approach they've got just now to do this. And sometimes I think when we have a look at social media, we'll be very satisfied at how well that simple, that effective strategy is working out just now. So we've got to continue to convince people, the undecideds, those that have just recently made the journey to support and independence and keep them on board all the time. The UK government would like nothing more than us to embark upon illegality and doing things rashly. And that's why they're not given any sort of opinion about the plan B that's been suggested for conference, because I think they'd actually be quite happy because it would get them off the referendum hook. They wouldn't have to worry about it anymore because here's the SNP turning the next year's election into a plebiscite. And all they would do if we did that and we were so successful is just say no anyway. You know, they've not even got a referendum to deal with. It's just somebody has won a general election and all of a sudden that's supposed to be a mandate to negotiate right. independence. Yeah, it's enough. so easy for them to deal with that and just dismiss it. So it doesn't take us any further forward, but at the same time, it might drive people away, people who want us to ensure that we're doing this properly. But certainly won't have any favour in the international community within the EU if we did something like that. So like, it doesn't achieve anything. It's counterproductive, and it could actually set us back. So that is why I oppose all these plans for plan, for plan B. We've got to stick with the project. We're winning. We're winning well. We're at levels I would never have thought at this stage after losing a referendum only um, eight years ago. And if we do this properly, we'll get there. And what a prize. A prize. A nation of our own. I, I was going to add that, you know, in addition to convincing the undecideds, it'd be really interesting, you know, with the, you know, with the constitutional site that I sent you that I've been working on and others that I, I know that we could start now kind of developing the Scottish state, you know, that would serve as, as very well to say, here's what we're proposing. This is what we're doing. Because, I mean, going, having studied American history a lot, you know, at the time of the revolution, I mean, there were so many popular movements going on. I mean, and, and, they, they, and people wanted, you know, to be free, you know, from the British Empire for of, of a wide variety of reasons. Then they, then they achieved independence. You had the Articles of Confederation for a few years that didn't work very well. And then the Constitutional Convention, what turned out to be the Constitutional Convention in 1787, really entrenched the, the, the power of the oligarchs. And, and, you know, John Jay, one of the main framers, said, those who own the country should run it. And that's just what I do not want. There, I don't think anybody wants for Scotland. So one thing that I think we can do, and I'd be interesting to, interested to work with you, you know, in the coming weeks, and any of your colleagues, I, I Joe at Sherry, I, she, she knows what I've been doing as well, but to begin to, you know, really specify what Scottish, uh, what, what a Scottish government would be so that we can, uh, and that could be involved having a, you know, a, a, at least an interim constitution that can be developed further, you know, uh, after the, the actual referendum is won. But I think having something that in place that I and others have developed and, and that everyone's welcome to participate and contribute to would go a long way. And, and we don't need permission from anybody to do that. You know, yep. so... Um, I mean, absolutely. And you're totally right. I mean, like, um, I mean, I think the example you give about the, the building of the American Constitution, I think all of us are much more familiar with it now if we've ever watched Hamilton, you know, so you, you know... You've got popular references about how all that was done and designed. And it was mostly Hamilton, and he knew what he wanted, and there wasn't a lot of debate. It was mostly landowners, I mean, you know, that were that designed it, uh, and the way the Senate was constructed. It, the Senate wasn't even uh, elected back then. It was chosen by the state legislators. The president was chosen by the uh, the, the the electoral college was was chosen by the Senate as well. The House of Representatives, who only 
landed landowners could actually vote it. So the degree of political participation was very low. It was only like 6% of the population. You're totally right. And Roger Mullen always reminds us, you know, like Roger did quite a lot of work. Um, I don't know if it was through OECD or UN and nation building in sub-Saharan Africa, particularly round about Malawi, I think it was Roger did. And, and like when they were preparing for their independence, a lot of the, lot of the work that was going on was building, you know, like robust institutions because they started from nothing. You know, like when, when you're run by, you know, like a colony like the, the UK, you, you've got, you might have a few buildings here and there and you might have a civil service yeah. you know, administered. Uh, administered probably by a Scot. <laughs> yes. So, you know, I mean, like there was a lot of things going on and Roger always reminds us that, that you know, like there is that work to be done. So because I totally commend the work that you're doing, Mark. I think it's fantastic. And, you know, I mean, I'm certain from all of my colleagues, you know, like um, particularly those of us who have an interest in constitutional affairs, you know, I mean, like um, it's something that we really need to sort of... You know, we can start having Zoom calls and going yeah. over aspects of it and we're, it's going to be done anyway like that. It's not like we're gonna, it's going to be a bunch of landowners man in a hot room in Philadelphia, you know, scoring it out. I mean, it has to be transparent. It has to be open. People need to be able to see what they're getting. The, the, and in the party, there's there's not really been much of a culture in order to try and do this type of work. I mean, like we always relied on Neil McCormick, you know, yeah. back. Like yeah. we did most of the work around constitution constitution designing and Neil's work was incredible one of the greatest brains mm-hmm. political brains we've ever had in Scotland lost so far too early and it would have been great to have Neil around you know like as a sort of eldest constitutional statesman just now to help us do these things but there really hasn't been and I know Leslie Riddick for, for example always tells us this is something we should be looking at and you know Leslie Nordic examples about you know how this is done particularly it's, Iceland it's got to be taken from all, all, all different kinds of traditions yeah. and it's just a question of but I, I just think it's, it's never too too soon to start, not only to, but, you know, to enshrine basic rights, uh, to, you know, to to design a coherent governing system and also an an amendment process. Because, for example, in the United States, they just tack on amendments to the end, to the, to the end of the the, uh, constitution, you know, and you can understand that in the paper age where, you know, you can't just change all the text of all the constitutions in the books. So you have to just tack on amendments, but why not be able to change the original text? That kind of thing where you could really given technology and and all that that you can i've often equated it to software it's yeah. like you know the operating system is the constitution and the laws are the are the applications are the and so and, and we can really build an integrated system like that where yeah. the where the constitution can reflect you know can can you know have a direct connection with the laws where anybody can you know make suggestions about how to change it how to upgrade it you can have and so you can have people collectively saying yeah i want that i want you know and voting through blockchain voting you know on a continual basis to refine and make the constitution better so that's kind of the way i've been envisioning i'm open to starting wherever anybody wants so so have a look at it well, of course, and you're, um, you're, you're now becoming well-known from our colleagues, too, so I know they're very much aware of your work, so yeah, yeah. we'll definitely do that. But, Mark, it's fantastic, and I really enjoy our, our conversation. I do, too. I, it's, really, it's really a pleasure, and I, I see your position on Section 30 much more clearly now. I mean, because I'm like everybody else is completely impatient. What if, they, what if they say no? What if they say no? But you see the political process much more clearly, having been out front, and as you, as you do say, it, it has to be done in a way that is clearly um, you know, the key thing keep everybody keep that broad coalition support together and then and look to the international community to build that support capacity 
that's what we're going to do. You know, it's, it's it's actually quite simple. You know, and that's that's how we do it. You know, and we go through the stages, the steps, making sure we don't lose anybody at the other end. And if we can, if we can hold fifty to sixty percent through all of this, it's only going to go up. It's only going to go up. I mean, yeah. I, I don't think it. I, I can't imagine anybody saying, "Yeah, well, I I I really loved independence, but now that Brexit happened, I I just, I just totally. totally happy to stick in the good old UK." I know. Yeah, good stuff. Okay, well, thanks. Um, have a look at the the site, and you know, let me know your thoughts. But um, and uh, let's let's get going on. You know? Yeah. Okay. Take it easy. Cheers. All right. Bye bye.